Spoiler alert! In this episode, we are discussing the filmography of M. Night Shyamalan, a director who is famous for his twist endings. We discuss the endings to most of his feature-length films. Uh, We also discuss the endings to Shutter Island, The Faculty, and Sideways. Consider yourselves warned. Welcome to 96 Greers, a podcast where we discuss every feature film with Judy Greer in the cast. I'm Reg. And I'm Patrick. And welcome back to our first episode of 2024. Uh, We are discussing a movie that is turning 20 this year. That's um, right. The Village, uh, directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Pivotal movie. Pivotal year, 2004. Uh, Patrick, have, have you seen this movie? I did. I saw it shortly after it came out on DVD. Mm-hmm. I saw it the one time, and I said to myself, why did everyone say that was bad? That was pretty good. <laughs> and then I never thought about it again, except okay. that every time it came up, I just thought to the back of my head, I think people are wrong when they say this movie is bad, but I'm also not confident enough to go back and actually rewatch it for pleasure because I bet I would find myself proved wrong if I did. So I only watched it the one time and sort of kept it in the back of my head as actually pretty good. One of those. Um, I guess I had a different reaction to it. I saw signs in theaters uh, and if I remember right, it was it was a pretty packed crowd because this was still like when, when people were really into M. Night Shyamalan and he was kind of a household name and he was like the twist guy. And, um, you know, I, I remember everyone going crazy over Sixth Sense and um, less crazy over Signs, but I still thought Signs was really good. And I didn't see Unbreakable, but everyone was like, oh, you got to see Unbreakable, you got to see Unbreakable. So then I was like, okay, um, so I went to see The Village and I was like so disappointed by oh, yeah? it. I, yeah, yeah. It, like, like it ended, and I was like, "What the fuck did I just watch?" Yeah, I, I was, I was not at all pleased um, with uh, with the village, and uh, I just sort of chalked it up to be a uh, not a good movie and like yeah. a big disappointment. And I, I also, it's probably worth stating, like, uh, it's a pivotal four years between us in two thousand and four. Yeah, when I am sixteen and you are twenty. Yeah, and I'm just sort of watching whatever and being like, "Ah, oh, that looked pretty. Well, what's what's wrong with the movie? It looks pretty, and it's got it's got a little spooky moment." And then you are like a twenty year old where you're like, "God damn, I am in college. I could be smoking weed right now instead of watching <laughs> this movie." Uh, I don't I don't know that I really had great taste oh, in okay. movies when I was twenty. So much for that theory. I was very generous with what I thought was a good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I am still that way, at least relative to you. I feel mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm less uh, critical of movies yeah. and, and I hold them to lower standards. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, um, then you, then you, but I'm saying, de- but I'm saying definitely in the last 20 years, um, I have gotten more, more critical of, um, you know, d- demanding more from the movies that I watch. Sure. And um, uh, you watched it this time. What did you get from it? I was not thrilled by it. I was mm-hmm. not won over mm-hmm. by watching it. You're not um, a member a second of its, and third of its times. cult following that consider it a masterpiece, which th- these are people that exist. No, I, I certainly don't. Um, there are um, things about M. Night Shyamalan as a filmmaker that I appreciate more now, especially how just how the last 20 years of, 
you know, film history have unraveled so far. There are things about about the village that I do appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, as a movie, I'm I still find it very underwhelming, um, especially having revisited Sixth Sense and Signs and then watching the village. Yeah. Um, you know, where I, I think both of those are, are very good movies. Yeah. Uh, so uh, pretty much in the same um, the pretty much in in the same lane of reaction as I had 20 years ago, if not quite for the same reasons. And then meanwhile, I uh, come to it now and I find that my overall like positive to negative where I was sort of like slightly above the middle and I was like, that was okay Mm -hmm. when I first saw it. I feel like now I have way more critical of it and have way more thoughts, but Mm -hmm. I'm roughly in the same place, which is I don't think this is a good movie. But I really enjoy contemplating it as a cultural object and a work, mostly mm. as the former. <laughs> um, and I, it's like one of those things. I forget who tweeted it, but it was a it was a tweet where someone was like, "The advantage of like the." Someone tweeted the the benefit of watching the Star Wars prequels is that you then get to think about the Star Wars prequels, <laughs> and it's like the actual and it's like the actual implications mm-hmm. uh, of those prequels and the story they're telling and what it says about the Star Wars universe and everything. Yeah, very interesting. Watching the movies themselves, very boring. And I kind of feel the same way for the Village, where it's like just knowing where it exists in his career and knowing like his approach to it and like where that where that really sings and where mm-hmm. that falls flat and mm-hmm. like all of those things. I think it's so fascinating a movie is like a point in time. I don't actually enjoy watching most of it. It is a lot of fun to argue about it on the way home after the village. I was so disappointed that having a really positive um, feeling towards M night Shyamalan before going in, I did not see another Shyamalan movie until uh, we sat down to do this podcast. Uh and honestly, was not looking forward to it. Yeah, he's he's a he's a really uh, productive director. So there wasn't a way that I was going to see everything that he's made in the last twenty years. Um, but I did get a chance to listen to some other film podcasts talk about uh, some of the the movies in those years that uh, unfortunately, gosh darn it, haven't gone around to seeing like like old and uh, old. split, <laughs> split, uh, and uh, the visit. Um, and while I don't feel like I will be watching any of those movies anytime soon, it was fun to hear like like the energy um, that that people get when they talk about his movies and just sort of the off the wall questions that occur to you about the scenarios that he mm-hmm. creates. We uh, we recently, as like part of like just sort of looking over his career and prepping for this podcast, we recently sat down together and watched Knock at the Cabin, his most yeah. recent movie. I would say probably just like as a film, as a like story, it's probably his like his third best movie. Mm-hmm. Um, just like it's functional in a way that most of his movies are not. Probably because it's based on a novel that he didn't write. Well, that's the thing is like <laughs> it is actually way less interesting to talk about than pretty much any other M. Night Shyamalan movie. Other M. Night Shyamalan movies, they're almost like gifts to you where it's just <laughs> like you're not going to believe what happens in this movie. And then your friends are not going to believe it when you tell them what happens in this movie. You are going to do an impression of Mark Wahlberg in The Happening, and they're going to go, okay, you're exaggerating. And you're like, no, I swear, he says it just like that. And like, <laughs> there there are like gifts sprinkled throughout even the bad uh, M. Night Shyamalan movies that are just like, 
as an entertainer, he's still kind of doing his job. In oh some yeah. Way. Oh yeah. Um, in a way that like knock at the cabin, you're, it's almost like, Oh, that's it's, I hope it is not a sign of things to come as far as like him sanding off his idiosync in idiosyncrasies in favor of making movies that are more palatable than, uh, old beach, the beach from old. <laughs> Well, although old is also uh, an adaptation of a graphic novel, um, but maybe the person who wrote the graphic novel is like M. Night Shyamalan's soulmates and the person who wrote the novel for Knock on the Cabin is not. And that was just not a good fit as opposed to like, please make more like adaptations of this nut jobs graphic novels because like yeah. like you're, like your your madnesses put together are like peanut butter and chocolate um but yeah knock knock at the cabin does feel more restrained than a lot of his movies which is really saying something because it is about the literal apocalypse uh and more than half the cast dies in the course of the movie so saying so, so talking about that as like oh he's a little more uh palatable now it's still really out there it's yeah. still you know something that you're gonna um it's an, pay it's, attention it's to an upsetting high concept yes in, yes in a, in, a, in a way that a lot of his films are built around high concepts upsetting or otherwise like it is, it is still a big high concept thing that uh, is pretty aggressive uh, in its uh, premise, but yeah, um, maybe not just so baffling <laughs> in, a, <laughs> in a way that a, a glass is. Yeah, th- th- that's that's true. It's not the kind of thing where you're gonna, um, as I tend to do, kind of sit sit and get bogged down in the logistics and say, well, that couldn't happen. Right. Um, but uh, speaking of those logistics. Uh, Maybe we should um, talk about the plot of yeah. the village. We are we already gave all the spoiler warnings up front, so um, I think we can just dive right into the actual plot of the village. The people of a small rural village live in isolation due to a threat they call those we do not speak of. I'm going to call them Twidenso for short, so I don't throw my microphone in a dumpster. The village elders have struck a long-standing bargain with Twidenso to keep their people safe that requires them to stay within the boundaries of the village and maintain taboos and protective rituals. But when the mutilated bodies of animals begin to turn up around the village, some suspect that Twidenso are breaking the agreements. A young villager, Lucius, wants to journey to the towns to procure medicines for the community, but the elders, including his own mother, forbid him. But when Lucius himself is on the brink of death, his fiancée Ivy makes a perilous journey through the forest to help save his life. So, Patrick, I have a burning question for you. Hit me. Are the villagers anti-vaxxers? <laughs> it's, look, we, we so desperately want to know what the philosophy behind the villagers are. But the thing that is really beautiful about the village, uh-huh. which I did notice in your plot synopsis, you did not give the twist. No, no. I, I mean, I figured we would talk about the twist, but I, I, the I twist just... The twist is yeah. that this is not a late 19th century um, sort of... Uh, uh, religious minority right. who have gone off into the wilderness right. to live on their own. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're not a commune. I mean, so the movie opens during the burial of one of the elders' sons, and you get a shot of the headstone, and the dates on the headstone are in the 1890s. Yes. So, and and it is, um, you know, the 
the clothing that they're wearing, the technology that they're using all suggests uh, late 19th century. And the dialogue attempts to suggest it. The dialogue suggests uh, crucible fan fiction. At, at any rate, um, the thing that they are actually mm-hmm. is a rich guy's, like a billionaire's pet project. Yeah. Um, they are basically the uh, Titan submersible. <laughs> they, they are oh, like... Boy. The, they are, they're somewhere in between um, Nexvium or like one of those cults and the Titan submersible yeah. in terms of although, like. Although this, this is, this is, um, so, so William Hurt, uh, Mr. Walker, uh, who is one of the town elders, but um, it, it's, it suggests that they have some sort of like, um, some sort of horizontal structure or, or democracy or, or, or group consensus, mm-hmm. but but just personality wise, uh, Walker seems to be like the leader yeah. of the of the village. And then later you learn that um, that, yes, he is the son He's chill t- CEO in flip flops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically. Um, and, and you learn that that he is the son of a of someone who was a fantastically wealthy man who was who was killed violently uh, in the seventies, and then he met the other elders uh, in nineteen seventies Philadelphia, of course, because it's fucking M Night Shyamalan, and everything happens in Philadelphia. Um, and then they, uh, he, he has this huge amount of land that he turns into uh, a, an animal preserve. And now, does and- he have it, or does he get it from the the people of the United States of America? <laughs> Because it is, in fact, inside of a a wildlife preserve. Yes, it is inside a wildlife preserve, but it's called it's called Walker Wildlife Preserve. I think what what the movie is suggesting is that this is land that his family owns. Okay, I don't I don't think that he is like absconding with land from from like a national wildlife. Because you do find out later that part of this arrangement is that he has paid the government not to fly airplanes over. It. Yeah. And and this so is So there this... is a government conspiracy aspect even if it's not the government's land. And this is the kind of thing where I started going down this like this like rabbit hole where I was just getting so bogged down with the logic. I mean, so the first time I saw it, I was so like offended almost by by the twist where I was just like that's not clever. That's stupid. And I was just like, like so um, sort of angry at it. I, I missed that, um, that the, the security guards that Ivy um, crosses paths with have like Walker on their badges, which is their, their family name. Um, So, you know, suggesting that um, it is, their land, they are the ones who are paying the security, who are paying for the upkeep. It's it's probably I'm I'm sure that he set up some kind of trust that would, you know, you know, um like like fund this in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. Um and I missed all that the first time around. And and I was kind of like with everyone else, was like, well, what if they hear a plane? But th- that is explained at least a little bit um by the Shyamalan cameo uh at the end where he's just sort of like chit-chatting with his co-worker and, and summarizing everything they do and hey, the whole buddy, job. Real quick, real quick, I got six points of exposition I got to get out yeah. real quick yeah. so we everyone's <laughs> up to speed and then we can go right back. All I, right, buddy? That's exactly how I talk with my co-workers around the Xerox machine. Um, so you asked me, are they anti-vaxxers? And I think the thing I like about the village uh-huh. is they don't seem to have a thought in their head. They have committed their life to something totally absurd. There is no actual philosophy 
behind it. They have a certain number of rituals they do that don't seem tied to any specific point of view yeah. of the world. So, and that to me is like perfect billionaire brain, kinda. which is like we live in a fallen society and what we really need to do is return to our roots as a people. This to me is like the same uh, conservative uh, people who are like, abstract art is a sign of decadence and like how we have fallen. And it's like at a certain point, great art used to look like this. It's a really accurate painting of a boat, but now it's this, it's this guy, guitar guy and it's all fucked up and weird. <laughs> well, and then, and then you also have the leftist version of that, which is, um, which, which is, you know, society is, is unfair and materialistic and flawed, but I'm going to pull away from that and just live with my buddies in the woods and me and mine are taken care of. So, wah, wah, yeah. you know, um, um, which is exactly what he's doing here, which is also um, a position of extreme privilege. Right. The uh, the um, anarcho-primitivists yeah. who, who do not have an answer for what happens when my glasses break. Yeah, basically. <laughs> but they're not going to listen to this podcast. That's eh. true. That's true. We could, we could say all the shit we want. We should get a running list going of like uncancelable groups where we're just like, we know for sure Mennonites aren't listening. It's fine. Um, well, so anyway. there's a, there's a, there's a moment later on where it goes, you know, you can't shield yourself from heartbreak. We know that now. Well, yeah, well, yeah, because because what you learn is that is that um, is that Walker uh, is building this project because he's reacting to his father being murdered, and all the other elders have had someone in their life who was murdered, basically. So they're mm -hmm. all just sort of like reacting out of grief and trauma by making this like big move to just completely pull away from reality right and to create their own reality and the and the other context that is important is it is 2004 it is an election year it is the year where finally mainstream culture feels uh comfortable and safe speaking out against the iraq war and things like that and it's mm. like you really don't get a lot of anti-bush stuff before this but like in 2004 you suddenly get all of these movies and stuff that are willing to like take a look at the war on terror and all that mm -hmm. and so we have these people who have experienced tra the trauma of violent crime who have sort of retreated into this fantasy conservatism of uh, ideal mm -hmm. of what America must surely have been like at some point before bad things happen yeah. to them personally. <laughs> and it's like, and it is just like the evangelicals in the white house in 2004. Yeah. The problem is speak, uh, sorry, speak, ahead, speaking ahead. of the war on terror and the village, something I learned going down my, my weird little rabbit hole was that um, the Bushes ranch in texas and and also their vacation property in maine are both permanent no-fly zones that's pretty good <laughs> like uh like just like the village yeah that's pretty good i like that um and it's like the, the problem is that m night Shyamalan does not have a coherent idea of what he means to say by this he doesn't view this village as it they're they're like very conservatively dressed. It's mm -hmm. all like beiges. They are all sort of uniform. There mm -hmm. is there is this like culty uneasiness to watching their their day to day life. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't seem to be like they. You don't see the harshness or the austerity of such a lifestyle. You don't see people like really uh, like they say don't go out there. And as long as you don't go out there, 
you're allowed to express emotion. You're yeah. allowed to sort of. They're like, all very kind to each yeah, other. They all help each other. They they eat communal meals. This is not M. Night Shyamalan like getting anyone in the crosshairs and right. like taking out what he finds to be a reprehensible worldview. Yeah, they it, seem to enjoy their lives. Like like you like you the first time you see the elders at a meeting, they're discussing um a festival that they're going to hold. It's like it's like the the festival of the birds or something mm-hmm. like that. And they're like, oh, I do enjoy seeing the children in their costumes. So these aren't people who are like no fun no music no happiness you know they they do want to have um like 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 a peaceful happy life and and to live in harmony with each other but they're also um just just creating this lie Mm -hmm. and um and manipulating their community so that no one can step outside that lie so it is it is a much kinder take on this uh, kind of American mindset sure. than most films that were coming out around mm-hmm. this time. It is much kinder than like George Romero did Land of the Dead in the following year, which was like a really aggressive takedown sure. of the Iraq war. And- I, I, I also do have to disagree with you about um, you don't see the austerity of the community because I think something that comes up a lot in this is um, sort of uh, questioning the ethics of what they're doing because they are cutting themselves off from modern medicine. Brendan Gleeson plays one of the elders and it starts out with um, them burying a young child of his, which to me suggests that there was some kind of illness or accident that they weren't able to cure and that this child died. Mm -hmm. Then you have uh, two of the main characters are people with disabilities. And I think that there's like these like little suggestions of like, oh, but maybe if it wasn't, you know, this level of technology, maybe they could have gotten some kind of help or maybe they wouldn't be in the situation that they're in, which is, um, something to unpack, but I think that is part of the story. And then it basically culminates with um Lucius Joaquin Phoenix's character getting stabbed, and it's only because he is like he has an infection from the stab wound and he's gonna die. That's the only reason that Ivy is allowed to leave. And and in, even when Lucius says earlier in the movie that he wants to leave, he's not talking about like oh, what if we incorporated like a rumspringa policy? It's like, it's he's saying, I want to get medicine. I want to prevent people from dying. Okay, so one thing is I do strongly disagree with the implication that like the disabled people in this movie could have gotten help uh, if they didn't live in a world that was sort of cut off from modern medicine because it depicts Bryce Dallas Howard as basically being like daredevil and being like, preternaturally able to just like run and frolic anywhere and know exactly where she is at all times despite the fact that she is blind yeah and it has adrian brody who has like the most vague fairy tale like he's the fool tarot card like Mm, level of just like mental disability yeah and i don't think either of those are implied in terms of like they don't have a character who's like oh yeah my knee got fucked up and i can't get a knee replacement so i just like walk really slowly and things like that and also like the first time someone gets an infection, like someone gets an infection. And so they go, all right, let's break our rule. <laughs> like that to me, that to me proves that it is in fact the opposite, which is like, it's like, yeah, you knew infections existed already. Yeah. Well, which implies that it's, they, they don't have a policy in place for what happens when someone is slowly dying of an infection. Well, I, well, I think up to this point, their policy has been, they're going to die of the infection and we're just going to going to do our like 1890s thing of like of like you know dabbing their head with a wet 
cloth um because i mean i think it's implied that that like that like they've they've let a child die like like i think when brendan gleason says that thing about we've learned that you know that heartache exists for us no matter what i'm pretty sure that's what he's talking about is like having just lost a young child the end of the movie which is after there have been murders and stuff like that like well yeah but i i would just think it hasn't been like that long of a time for him so i would assume that he's still like grieving that loss like like i like i just think when he's saying that i think that's what he's responding to um I, okay so i guess my point is more i don't think m night Shyamalan is interested in making a point about the austerity because he doesn't highlight it he in fact spends much more time highlighting how a great time everyone has at the wedding how well everyone gets along together how they all look out after each other like yeah, even the I, girls who are like having to sweep off the porch they're right. like playing a fun little game yeah, and spinning yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. like and if he was interested in highlighting the austerity he would highlight the austerity but i just like just the fact that there is factors of their of their world that they've created that is more austere than ours doesn't mean that I think he as a storyteller is highlighting that or like concerned mm, with that. I, I don't think he's highlighting it, but I do think that like, like I don't like, I don't think it becomes like, like a big part of the narrative, but no, I do think it becomes a big part of the narrative because, because that is the specific reason that Lucius gives for wanting to leave the community. And that's what starts that whole dialogue. And then presu- so, so he, so Brendan Gleeson's, child dies Mm -hmm. lucius presumably feels some kind of way about it he comes to the elders and he says i want to go through the woods um and and break this agreement that we have with um you know with uh the twidenso uh in the woods and they say no and then after that is when the twidenso come into the village and attack because they're trying to terrify their community into obedience I, I took that not as a reaction to his petition, but just a pretty standard part of their day-to-day life, given that they have the bell tower and they have the people standing watch at all times. Like, I would think that they would just, like a fire drill, you just run regular people out in the woods not to be named. But they're drills. so scared. They're, they're, they're terrified during it. Like, you have Michael Pitt, who's, like, shaking in his boots up in the bell tower. I, if, you, have, you have Judy if Greer. I lived, who... If I lived in a village that a, a lion could possibly run into, I would be extremely scared. If a lion came into it, even if it happened three or four times a year, every single time I'd be very scared. But, right, but, but I'm, but I'm saying. It's not, it's not, it's not elders because they know it's fake. Yeah. It's not a drill for the people who are Okay, yeah, yeah, it's not a drill for them. I don't, I didn't see the, the people emerging from the woods, the monsters emerging from the woods as being a reaction to Joaquin's petition. I just thought of that. It's like. Yeah, and then regularly we just have to remind people that the monsters are real and do exist. I, I'm pretty sure they say that that oh we have this agreement where they don't come into our village and we don't go into their woods, mm-hmm. and they and we have kept up that agreement. So but I if they I don't faith think in that agreement they wouldn't have the watchtower with the bell. It seems mm-hmm. like it seems like it seems like from the way they're positioning this mythology, it's like we have an agreement, but we don't really trust them because they're not human beings and we don't know what motivates them and they have the power to do whatever they want at I any think, time and we are sort of merciless. I think the reason that they have the watchtower and the flags and the like painting the the yellow, with the yellow which is the good color mm-hmm. and keeps out the, the Twidenso which wear red and the red's the bad color. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is something that they do to keep people busy and occupied so that they don't ask those questions. 
like like I don't I don't I don't think that that they're expecting anyone to be like well we haven't been attacked so why am I up in this bell tower like they have to be like no constant vigilance constant vigilance we need to keep up our you but know it doesn't feel like a village of constant vigilance it doesn't feel like people living under wartime or you know if they don't look like they're the Britons who could be blitzed by the Germans at any point like, well yeah but like I didn't feel that way in 2004 either but we're st- but you know that was still the like. You know, I that was still like like the 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 political mindset, and that was still the the mindset that was like driving policies at that time. But like, I don't know, in two thousand four, I was I was smoking pot and going seeing M Night Shyamalan movies at the Cineplex. Right. <laughs> I I guess here's my question: at the end, when they all kind of have a group hug about her returning, and they're like, ah, it all went it all yeah. went as it should. Yeah. Do you think M. Night Shyamalan is like, that's really tragic? Like, it would be much better if things went badly and then they had to reckon, but now they don't have to reckon with... Like, do you think he has a strong opinion about whether, like... I don't think... Because mm. here's the thing I actually feel about M. Night Shyamalan, uh-huh. which is he has in him a pathological desire to be capital G great. Yeah, definitely. Um, and he wrote a screenplay and then directed that screenplay... And the job he did on both the screenplay and the direction led everyone to calling him capital G great. And he was like, I, I knew. Of course I knew because I, I always felt inside I was capital G great. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the entire <laughs> this, this world. Is, this is the guy who starts his closing credits with an M. Night Shyamalan film. Yeah. in like in a super animated kind of a way or whatever. So like this to me is someone who... Every subsequent movie after The Sixth Sense, not every subsequent, because eventually, like, his career went in a place where he stopped, where he was never going to be on Night Shyamalan again. Yeah. But, like, every subsequent one, he's, like, desperately grasping at, like, icons of profundity. He's like, yeah. what does a movie that is taken seriously do? And yeah. then, like, I should do that um, more than he actually has any big ideas. And that's why, like, I watched this movie and it's at odds with itself, where it's like, it's a movie about these people living in denial and about how living on the lie has all of this collateral damage that you can't see. Yeah. But it's also a movie where it's just like, and everyone's kind of nice to each other and it's cool. And like, we're all breezy and we have like a, we have like a four minute uh, wedding scene where everyone's having a grand time. Like he doesn't, yeah. he's not actually concerned with like I, living I, under the lie is worse than living under the truth or anything like that. What the end made me think of a little bit was um, the faculty. Okay. Where you have the end of the faculty. Spoilers for the faculty. It's not an M. Night Shyamalan movie, but here we go. Um, where the, the the pod people teachers get defeated and the, the students prevail. And then um, the last scene of the movie is very idyllic and everyone has this togetherness. And, you know, they... they the 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 alien fighting breakfast club are still friends even though it's the next day kind of vibe mm-hmm. but there is these like um these these little suggestions that the idyllic togetherness is actually is bad actually um but just seeing that movie for the first time you're probably not going to pick up on that it's going to take like like a couple watches sure. before you pick up on you, like unlike unlike oh they're still doing to, their weird bullying ritual you have you know? to you also have to like feel deep down inside the dread of knowing that that shot in Clea Duval in like pastel colors is coming yeah exactly and then you go, oh no here it comes ah she has fucking bows in her hair yeah or, yeah so it's like if if you're just like you know going to the movies with your friends or just sort of like like half watching it while you're doing something else which I never do um then 
then then it's gonna say then you're gonna say oh it's a happy ending because mm-hmm. it's it's idyllic and and everyone's laughing and the sun's out um but there's those suggestions that it's not and there's there's that like subversion but that's probably gonna come if you're like really focusing on the movie and you know or or if you've already seen it several times and you kind of are looking for something beyond the surface i think the village is the same because i would have said from my first or second watch that that yes i think i think it is supposed to be like a happy ending because it's like you know ivy and lucius are reunited and lucius is going to live and all the elders are on the same page and but i on my third watch i was like oh i, I think he's subverting the happy ending here because um you have all the elders who are gathered and um they find out that uh ivy has killed noah um who was dressed up in his twidenso um costume and and chasing her through the woods and that she defeated him and his parents are are two of the elders noah's parents and then his mother starts sobbing because her son died and uh walker is like no you know don't be sad because um this is what you've done you know what your son's sacrifice his noble sacrifice because his death has now cemented in everyone's minds that you know twidenso are real and we can keep up our lives here and it's an ivy going outside of our community and coming back isn't going to be the threat that we thought it was because she has the story of being chased by one of these creatures mm. um and then and then um there's basically um like the elders all kind of standing up to show that they agree with with walker and noah's mother is the last one to stand up but she does stand up Mm -hmm. so i think the fact that that it's like it's like oh this is a community funded and run by this guy who can manipulate someone to like accept their son's death to keep the lie going Mm -hmm. so that so there there is that darkness at the end but again it's like it's like if you're not if you're watching the movie for the first time that's really not what you're going to be focused on you know it's interesting i think i think i think actually the real key of like why the village doesn't work is like we just had a really interesting conversation about like the logistics and philosophies of what this setup means. Yeah. And it's like the kind of thing that if instead of being the last moment twist, like midway through the movie, you learn this Mm -hmm. and then suddenly you're, you're viewing everyone's ulterior motives and stuff like that. Like it might've even been a twist that people would find like less corny, like probably not still a corny twist. Anyway, you slice it. The thing about this movie is that it is like maybe one third this material and it is two thirds like really empty gesture fairy tale motions that it's just sort yeah. of like and your little Joseph Campbell hero's journey like because again he wants to he wants to have like the epic sweep of something that is that is uh sort of like fundamental inside of the human you know condition and how he tells stories or whatever yeah. because he wants it to feel big and important because he feels inside that he himself is big and important yeah um, yeah and so like so much of this movie is in fact like about the romantic intrigues of these characters that is like totally kind of irrelevant other than like yeah. it being the motivating factor for her to leave yeah but but the fact that he needs to spend so much or feels like he needs to spend so much time building up those relationships it does it does feel like a a big waste of time and then it just sort of like leads 
kind of kind of somewhere else i think i think a lot of that has to do with the performances generally i am okay with performances in m night in m night Shyamalan's movies mm-hmm. um i think I, I think part of it is like the weird way that the dialogue is written oh, that, yes. <laughs> that that makes it a little difficult to be on board with can, these can characters. You, can you tell the audience a little bit more about how people speak in the village? Oh my God. So <laughs> it's like because it takes place supposedly in the 19th century, I almost think that the way they speak is supposed to be like kind of a tell like it's a, it's supposed a to feel tell. inauthentic because yes. it in fact is yeah inauthentic. i i think i think it's like how if you go back and watch the sixth sense you're like oh Haley joel osmond's the only one who ever talks to bruce willis right huh wow and i mean i think i think that, that the version of that is like Wow, everyone talks like they're a 16-year-old who just read their first Shakespeare play and now they're back and trying to convince their nerd friends that they're really smart. It, it, is, it, is, it is dialogue as written by the three most obnoxious people backstage in a high school production of The Crucible who decided yes. they want to keep talking like that the whole yeah. the whole time they did yeah, the play. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. Um, I, I think, at, which is like, if that was a tell... And like that's just like you have to be a very good screenwriter. To I know, like that's me being very charitable. Well, no, I, I mean I think that's I. I was thinking the same thing. You know, watching it again. You know, uh, in prep preparation for this, was thinking like it would be really interesting if like he was able to make people's interpretations of what late nineteenth century uh-huh. uh, American vernacular is. Uh-huh. Like if if he was able to like show distinctions and like everyone has their own interpretation because none of them are actually like building right. off of anything. Right. Um like that would be like really fascinating. In fact, what it does is like just put a ton of stumbling blocks in between you and every piece of meaning that in the movie because it all has to be expressed through this like hodgepodge of uh, broken syntax. Yeah. Um, it, it also kind of got me, I, again, this was just like a logistical thing that I got bogged down in where um, there's like the the really clunky exposition of the twist, which is done through a, not only, not only a voiceover, um, a voiceover that has nothing to, to do with anything that's actually going on in the movie besides the fact that it's like, William Hurt arbitrarily and his wife arbitrarily opening up a locked box where they keep, um, where as everyone has in their own home, mm-hmm. a, a stack of newspaper clippings that explain exactly what's going on. That and is then, and then this my like favorite M Night Shyamalan device is the person who lives with their newspaper clippings yeah, that yeah. explains their life. <laughs> Not a scrapbook, <laughs> newspaper clippings in a stack hidden in a shoebox. Um, but, but but not hidden so that the box itself is not in plain sight. No, no. Go, hey, it's, what's in there? And they're like, uh, uh, in where? What? He, Shut up. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah well, yeah, they, they even lampshade that early in the movie where Joaquin Phoenix is like, mother, why do you have that box? And Sigourney Weaver is like, it is there to remind me of my past life, my son. Uh, okay. <laughs> Okay, uh, but yeah. So basically, it's, it's like thirty years. You you're asking me about the box now, buddy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like they they open up Pandora's box of of backstory, and then there's this voiceover from from William Hurt that is like so disjointed. 
it's almost I, I almost wonder if it's supposed to sound like collage or or some kind of uh, montage but it's just him like like saying the lines as though it's a monologue but, but so he's basically like my father was murdered for his money and I am a professor of American history. So it's, it's just sort of like, oh, here's all these little tidbits that I, like my throw everything together. My understanding is support group. Yeah, yeah, and that's that, right. There's, that, a, the there's a photo of a them bunch. in front of the counseling center, which that's is definitely something. Yeah, yeah. I, as Speaking as someone who has been, who has gone to support groups, who has facilitated support groups, every single one. We're just we're just out there like doing the little like. They hired a photographer. Doing the little Korean finger pinch heart. It's, it's the 70s, so they hired a photographer to take the yes, photo. Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. That, yeah. Um, but but basically, you know, uh, Walker, William Hurt's character says, you know, that he's a, a, a professor of American history. So it's like, OK, well, of course, he's going to be a fucking weirdo who talks like this right. because he just like daydreams about the stuff all and the again, time. So, like a really good screenwriter would like you would be able to rewatch it and be like, the thing I love about this character is they fucking hate speaking like this and they yeah. resent every word that comes out yeah. that way. Yeah. And you never get that. You never get like the personality of the person underneath the performance. Right. Uh, that makes anyone distinct. Like Sigourney Weaver's in this movie. Yeah. Why is Sigourney Weaver in this movie? Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't it be much like better if every time she said, oh, my stars and garters, she like rolled her eyes. But like, no, of course, everyone is like 100 percent on board, um, has been living at the Ren Fair for 30 years and has all the speech down pat. <laughs> sort of. Sort of. Joaquin Phoenix keeps throwing in um, some kind of accents and no one else does it. And it's it it really throws me off. And I mean, he's so he's so saturnine to begin with. It's like he barely talks, and so it's supposed to be one of those things where it's like it's like oh, he's like Silent Bob, and like when he actually talks, he's saying some real profound shit. But he's just coming at you with this like it sounds a little British, and then it sounds a little Southern, and then it goes away, and then it comes back. You know, I think the reason the performances in this movie are are low quality. Mm-hmm is because it is a big ensemble movie, um, but M. Night Shyamalan shoots everything in master shots. Um, He is very stubborn about this. He does not like shooting coverage. And so what you do, if you're staging a a scene that has like seven different speaking roles and you don't want to cut a lot in between all the different people who are speaking, you are going to find a way to frame them so all their faces in the frame at the same time And what that means is that you can't edit the movie in order to build stronger individual performances or draw people's focus in on specific things individual actors are doing at different moments. It just, and it's like in a really well-staged movie, like his hero, Steven Spielberg, there's constantly scenes where there are just like five faces on screen and they're all having an argument. And it's just like, the meaning is always the clearest thing possible. And I feel like Shyamalan couldn't direct anybody well because he didn't really know what he wanted in a way that I don't mm. think is true of The Sixth Sense or even Unbreakable. Um, I f- it feels a little bit true in Signs is where like part of the thing that is so amusing about his bad movies is this like really shaggy, uh, out of touch, digressive, like why, who would add that detail? Like you could, you could have the character say anything at this moment and it would be the same, but you had them say an insane thing at this moment. Yeah. And like, I think a lot of that comes from not having a very specific point of view and thus just wanting to sort of throw a bunch of stuff in there and see Mm -hmm. what happens. And I feel like that is chaotic when you have a extremely high concept, like 
what is happening with all of the people in the village and you have all of those actors and none of them quite understand what the what they're supposed to be conveying in their performances yeah especially with the elders who i mean i feel like every time i revisit i revisit this movie you know preparing for this episode um and just thinking about it i just have more and more questions about the elders and i wish that the movie was about them and not about like this really uninteresting romance Uh between bryce dallas howard and joaquin phoenix what if this was a movie about a political power struggle within the elders and because everything is made up one of the elders just starts like spinning off his own mythology and they have to like counter with like a counter mythology and it like becomes a schism in the church basically like there's so many directions that this premise which is incorporating the twist that everyone hates the the reason everyone hates that twist is the fact that they don't want to leave this cloistered town in the late 19th century it is it is in meaning like fundamentally identical to the fact that they want to retreat to a fictional version of the past, which is they are afraid of the corruption of the outside world and yeah. they want to keep to themselves to maintain a purity. And it's like if they were a group of like religious minorities who were decided to live in agrarian society off the grid or whatever the mm-hmm. late 19th century equivalent of the grid is, it would be identical. It doesn't make any like this could be a movie that takes place in the 19th century and the monsters can still be fake and everything else would have the exact same meaning. So what he so it's like that the reason everyone mm. rejects that twist is it adds no additional meaning mm-hmm. but it does add additional phoniness and it does like just make everything seem a lot dumber. Mm. And for a movie that has is beautifully shot and edited and has some really amazing moments of sound design like mm-hmm. and one of the funny things about going back and watching this movie now is you look at it and it kind of just feels like an A24 movie. Like it kind of just feels yeah. like like the thing that people found unpalatable in 2004, now people are like, oh, yes, of course, he has elevated the genre of horror with, you know, and like the slow camera push-ins. And like when they yeah. find the skinned animals, there's this like really great feedback loop of the flies that like suddenly gets cut silent when they mm-hmm. cut to the elders discussing it. There's like a couple like audiovisual moments like that where that it's just like so fucking A24 in a way that is like people feel something when they watch the movie and then they feel tricked. When they yeah. get the twist, yeah. which is like, how dare you trick me into with your, your immaculate craft for this bullshit? <laughs> it's a bit like a precursor of Midsummer, where you you have this isolated community right. um, that's that's creating this like um, really like aesthetically interesting setting, um, you know, with like with like the the sort of rituals that they're doing and like the the yellow cloaks and and um, I I. I really like that wedding scene where it's just like everyone has yeah. like a wreath of flowers on and they're dancing. It's just beautiful. It's just like like such like a lovely little shot by Roger Deakins. Of air. Is a oh yeah, beautifully it, photographed movie. Yeah, and it's kind of the same thing with Midsummer, where it's it's like it's an idyllic community and everything's beautiful, but is it? Is it really evil? Mm. And I think it's drawing from the same uh, inspiration as Midsummer, which is like I think the seventies is like yeah. what he is going for. Yeah, seventies usually. Like in in Signs, there are like five different Spielberg movies that are constantly getting ripped off. It's like you're constantly either seeing Jaws or Close Encounters or E.T. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, Signs. And I think here he is going more like Wicker Man. He is going more like 70s art house horror Kubrick yeah. with all the zooms and stuff is, mm-hmm. is like very 70s. And again, it's just like. I, I don't think he had the the grasp of it or even the fetishization of it that a lot of current filmmakers do when they're doing these like 
you know, when the uh, Peter Stricklands of the world are doing their throwbacks. Like, right. That dude is a, is a fucking genre movie pervert in a way that like <laughs> M. Night Shyamalan has never had a sexual thought in his life as far as I can tell. <laughs> um, but like, I, I do think, I do think like, yeah, the, I think the, I think the connection there is like not accidental. I think A24 in some ways is what results when someone looks at the sixth sense and go, you know, the reason why everyone went and saw the sixth sense was because it got the horror people in the door, but also the people who are too afraid of horror movies went and saw it. Oh yeah. Like 13 year old, uh, Johnny Jason X went and saw it, but also (laughs) Johnny Jason X's grandmother went and saw the sixth sense. Yeah. And that's why it made the gross domestic product of Portugal. (laughs) Like that's why it was just like the most massive thing ever. And he can still do it. I mean, even if he's not, um, the household name that he once was, I mean, I mean, I feel like knock at the cabin still fell in that, in that, um, that arena where there is the horror and the suspense. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is like a, like a very um, classic home invasion movie uh, in a lot of ways, but also it, it does uh, have a really lovely little family at its heart. And um, you know, so it's not the like, it, it's not the kind of horror movie that people who poo poo horror movies are usually um talking about you know mm-hmm. it, it it does uh he still manages to to find that overlap yeah and i think i think like as a as a technician as a director as a visual like storyteller there are certain things that he is absolutely extraordinary mm-hmm. about like he his instinct for like what to put in the frame and what to keep out of the frame and like how to build tension doing that. It's like, it's kind of why he always goes back to home invasion, which even the, when the monsters come in from the village or Mm -hmm. come in from the forest, like that in it, in itself is more or less the scene in signs where the aliens are trying to get into the house. Um, Like uh, the idea of like, there's something just on the other side of the door. There's something just on the outside of the frame. There's something way in the background out of focus that is coming towards us and we are uneasy because we yeah. don't know what we're seeing and not seeing. Yeah. Like even the violence in cab, uh, knock at the cabin, which is a rated R movie, mm-hmm. but like it, the violence is cut as if he was trying to get a PG 13 rating because yeah, it's he, like just he, off camera. All he wants you to do is to look at those gnarly homemade weapons and then yeah. he wants you to imagine it. Yeah. I, I think there's one, there's one death in knock at the cabin where um, the camera moves to, outside the cabin and you just hear the sound effects of the person being killed which was like so effective and and even this movie um even the village with its like sort of heightened uh fairy tale like reality manages to do that i mean you have the scene where noah stabs lucius and i love the camera work in that where joaquin phoenix it's just a close-up of his face and it's like you don't know what happens until you see exactly what happens and then following right that following that up with um uh ivy uh who's blind finding him and the camera is out of focus as she is um you you know searching for him and and calling his name and then when she basically walks into him uh suddenly the, the camera comes into focus on her face and the music cuts and it is it is such an effective sequence um so he he is really adept at knowing when to show things and when to keep them hidden. I like I, I as the person who just previously said like God, I wish there was like seventy percent more the elders and their like 
uh, petty disagreements and yeah. politicking, and there was just like a hundred percent less of the romance and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That moment where she's reaching out her hand for Joaquin Phoenix, and you see the monster sort of in the background. Oh yeah, like around it. the corner, and like the very moment he grabs her hand, he cuts it into this like romantic slow motion, and he's like bounding through the door and he's yeah. like holding her by the hand and they're both going to go in the cellar together. It is so fucking romantic and beautiful. Yeah. It's like, okay, well a movie full of that. It's, it's funny because uh, in, in one of the, the interviews that he did for the village, he said that he was inspired by Wuthering Heights and none of the relationships in this film are, anywhere near as compelling um i mean you you have like like one scene of ivy and lucius confessing their feelings for each other and i mean you have some sweet moments between like family members and friends and stuff like that Mm -hmm. but for the most part this is this is not a film about big emotions this is this is not it's operatic yeah yeah it it doesn't have the gothicness of the gothic horror i think there's i think one of the things that actually sixth sense really benefited from Mm -hmm is that when M. Night Shyamalan tries to depict, like, the world, either as it exists in our current times or, like, create a world that functions on its own in a fantastic sense, Mm -hmm. like, you just get the vibe that he doesn't quite understand how anything works. And there's almost, like, a childlike understanding of, like... There's a scene in Signs where she like he asks for a specific book from the 70s and she's like, "Oh yeah, last shelf on the bottom, third from the right." And it's like, "That's not how bookstores work. Have you ever been at a bookstore?" <laughs> yeah, it's it's like um the, I remember that scene too. Um um she's uh the the book the bookkeeper is saying like, "Oh, yeah, we keep that for the out of town folk that come through." First off, Bucks County isn't exactly like the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not. Um and and yes second off like no one no one in your town is interested in ufos like that's not that uncommon of an interest farmers are too normal farmers farmers read books about farms and books about sports it must yeah. be a real city weirdo <laughs> to want to know about ufos yeah farmers, well, something farmers are never interested whenever in. you think of someone being abducted by aliens it's always from the middle of the city and never from a farm or the woods <laughs> so uh but the sixth sense is a movie that doesn't exist in the real world it exists in this like little sliver of the afterlife that bruce willis exists in yeah and and, like the only interpersonal reactions uh, interactions that really exist is between Cole and his mother. Yeah. And that is like a very like well-constructed, but like self-contained little world of its yeah. own. You all, I mean, those are also two really primo performances oh my God. from Haley Joel Osment and Tony Collette. They're, Tony they're so, so good in that movie. Good. That's the thing. It's like Haley Joel Osment, child, not a lot of experience. Right. So good in that movie. Yeah. Um, Tony Collette, unbelievable in that movie so it's it's not like oh yeah and my Shyamalan he has big high concepts but he doesn't have the human touch to like work with actors it's like no he gets good performances from people yeah. a good performance from Bruce Willis in 1999 is not a given <laughs> um, but Bruce Willis is pretty good in The Sixth Sense I think something also in The Sixth Sense he kind of loses in later films is there's not the tendency to explain who the characters are by having them tell you straight up, this is my profession. It's more woven in and organic. Like you find out that that Tony Collette is like a single mom working two jobs. You don't find out what those jobs are. And I feel like if this was a later Shyamalan movie, there would be at least one scene where she's like, I'm a waitress and I work at a gas station, you know, yeah, and, yeah. When, when like no one really asks. Um, 
Yeah, so I, I think I think it is a bit more um, grounded uh, as far as the dialogue than some of his later, a lot of his later movies. But I definitely agree with you when it comes to uh, how his 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 the world the worlds of his movies don't really seem grounded. Where a lot of them are interested in things like morality and good and evil, but he has these like very. Uh, simplified ideas about like what good and evil is oh yeah um and the the characters who get uh the 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 characters who you would probably label as the bad guys um tend to be people with mental illnesses and people with disabilities which is uh a really uh, gross habit to indulge in. <laughs> I, I I think this is the other reason why, and this is this is maybe unfair because this is taking from the rest of his career instead mm-hmm. of within the movie itself. This is the other reason why I feel he's letting the elders off the hook at the end of this movie because I think there is a deeply conservative streak through all of his movies, mm-hmm. and like that is part of it where it's like the good people are the good normal mommy daddy child like yeah. people, and the bad people are the mentally ill people who. Yeah. Who who come to disrupt the status quo? Like on a, like not conservative in terms of like what American politics and stuff like that are, but like conservative in terms of like really fundamentally like there's the status quo, and then there are aberrations that exist within individual bad people, not yeah. in bad systems or whatever. Yeah, and they do horrible things individually, and usually they do that because they're jealous of all the normal people. Yeah, like um. I think not knock at the cabin you have um the you have a a queer couple as the protagonists but they are um you know uh they they're they're dads they adopted a little girl from I guess China and um they both they're both like these handsome uh square-jawed white cis men um with uh with you know nice careers and and they they've got like their nice car and um they're 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 basically like a like just the 2023 version of like a white picket fence nuclear family yeah i would say knock at the cabin goes because of the source material actually goes at lengths to go the other way and to like deeply humanize the people who are doing the horrible things so I, like that, i that guess feel, but then you but then it. you have rupert grint's character who is just sort of like who dies so fucking quick but he's just sort of like well that red hair is a red herring because i think the only reason <laughs> rupert grit's character exists is to make you think that they're pot because the movie is so like just this is the central premise we are going to walk through the central premise to the end like you need to have some sort of variation <laughs> yeah he's, so just, you have he's the just sort of like go, i'm an angry violent guy and then he dies so immediately go, wait a second he knew us previously maybe there's actually some other thing going on here and it's like no, there isn't. <laughs> <laughs> but we had you, we had we had you wondering about it for twelve minutes, and that will have to do because yeah. this is a very straightforward story. Yeah, the, the the twist and knock at the cabin is there is no twist. Meanwhile, like Split is literally like, what if those like fucked up multiple personality people like hated all of us normies yeah. and they wanted to traumatize the normies and, and they were wanted... magical <laughs> and also also they had evil powers because of their because of their hatred of us people who weren't traumatized like yeah maybe he's gonna meet up with the guy who breaks his limbs very easily and has this like disability because of that and he's also evil because meh? Because um, he resents the normies. Ooh, maybe they'll team up against the nice family man who works as a security guard. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> so anyway, that's that is why I do t- struggle to um r- to maybe allow Shyamalan the nuance that he is at least gesturing towards in yeah. the ending of this movie. Yeah. Um I so I know that uh or based on his Wikipedia article, uh M Night Shyamalan does not identify as Christian, but he did go to Catholic school mm-hmm. um in his grade school years mm-hmm. for many, many years. Um and it seems like that sort of uh like iconography and sort of mode of thinking um has really rubbed off i again i think it's because it's a shortcut to profundity i suppose as much as anything else is like what if instead of it just being like a guy overcoming grief what if it's literally a guy rediscovering god and the and the victory at the end is that he puts the priest collar back on in the final shot yeah like that to me ups the stakes and it becomes this grand question of belief and faith. And it's like, science is a monster movie. (laughs) Science is a movie about a spooky thing out there. And we better stay in there because that's where the spooky thing is. Yeah. And then uh, there's also Deus Ex Machinas, and I suppose one of those Latin words has God in it, but like it's not a movie about faith. Yeah, it's a movie about the spooky guys outside. Yeah, and in the in the village, you kind of see that again, where um, it's like, oh, we have our nice village, and it's threatened by the spooky guys outside, um, which we're lying to you about because we have been threatened by the spooky guys outside, and like like every crime that happens to us is just like oh it was just some bad guy yeah. you know it, it's not like th- there's well, no the thing is we all lived in the city and therefore there are just like roving it's it's all death wish out there <laughs> there's all just like roving gangs of rapists who are who are just like stabbing people in their sleep yeah yeah basically and um and and then the the way that it's solved is by taking all of our wealth and privilege and isolating ourselves on stolen land um to to create our our own reality, and that's not real. It's like it's like is it that impulse that, that that is the pitch, and this is the movie. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and it's and it's like I I think that there is like I, I like I I do think that Shyamalan is kind of asking this question of like, oh, did they do the right thing? Because it seems like like there's some real drawbacks here. But I don't think he's ever, um, I don't think he's ever opposed to, like the elder's goal i don't think he i don't think he's ever like oh this is a problem I mean. that they're isolating yeah yeah, like yeah you can compare it to uh his idol at the time steven spielberg mm-hmm. and you look at the movies he was making in the wake of 9-11 he was like he is the most famous most mainstream director of all time and he was like going very hard about like minority reports is, is yeah and and um uh, War of the Worlds and movies and Munich and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Like, um, in contrast to movies like that, that even though at the end of Minority Report, it's like, yeah, they they turned off the they turned off the the precog program, and guess what? All the murders started up again, and it is like a little bit of like, oh, was this what, is this the trade off or whatever? Like, mm-hmm. Minority Report is not a movie about how the bureaucrats of the police state are actually like kind hearted people, right? Right, <laughs> um, and that's kind of what the village is. Yeah, yeah. If if, it, if you if you take Walker to be George Walker Bush, um, what? Yeah, yep, yep. I went there. What? I went. I went there. Um, this is a movie that is like everyone in the White House right now really means well. Yeah. And I think maybe they should be careful 
Because possibly <laughs> this could go in a bad direction yeah. if they're not careful with their well-intentioned uh, uh, war in Iraq. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, it's because they love their children. Right. <laughs> who might have to die so that they can keep up the narrative, but they love their children. Well, that well, unfortunately, this is the same year as Fahrenheit 9-11, so we know none of the senators would sign up their own children. Well, <laughs> yeah, we yeah. already had a scene of, them, of their children not dying for this, but <laughs> other people's children, certainly. Yeah, other people's children. Um... So this as we as we were talking before this this is a movie that has like a twist and and it seems yeah. it seems like we were both at like the particular ages we were at where we had like age appropriate reactions to like that twist mm-hmm. um but Shyamalan gets pegged as like the twist guy right you know but I think as we discovered kind of revisiting some of his other movies that's not his signature move. Um, not all of his movies. Not I wouldn't even say most of them have a have a twist. I bet above fifty percent do. Okay, but um, I guess I guess it does depend on what you what you mean by twist. Well, yeah, well, yeah. That's kind of that's kind of what I started wondering. Just because, um, you know, for for the sake of time, I was watching some like you know, YouTube videos summarizing the movies and, and things like that, and. Um, some of the endings that people were pegging as twists, like, so so people are like, oh, the twist of signs is that the aliens uh, are allergic or 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 to- or water is toxic to the aliens. And that's the the twist. That's not a twist. It is not a twist. Like, but 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 it's how people talk about it because it's it's an M Night Shyamalan movie. To me, and so this kind of got me thinking about like like what do we mean when we mean twist, and. To me, a twist ending is an is like information that is revealed at the end that changes the context of what you saw up to this point. A hundred percent. You can have movies that have shocking endings. Yeah. You can have movies that reveal something new in the last moments. But if those new things don't fundamentally change the nature of what you saw previously then it's like it's harder to justify them as twists. Yeah, so like um, so like Sixth Sense twist, Village twist, Unbreakable twist. What's the twist? Oh, oh, Mr. I guess Mr. Glass is a supervillain who caused the, That's right, that's right. I, I guess it's not I'm not it's not good, but it is it is a twist. It <laughs> yeah, is fundamentally it does, it like this guy who like, I thought was trying to help me achieve yeah. was in fact demonstrating his madness. Yeah, I I get yeah. And it became a folly ado, like sort of a thing. Like you watch it the second time and Mr. Glass plays differently, supposedly. I, that's a that's a that's a weird movie on its own way, because I just like fundamentally the characters of that movie are so like flat and yeah that morose. yeah that was one of the movies that i watched in preparation for this and i was like why did everyone like this movie i don't care for it at all uh maybe maybe i it's like just... the big swing every m night Shyamalan movie i like the big swings i like the idea of shooting that long ass uh fucking train sequence where he's like trying to flirt and stuff oh like that, yeah oh the camera work yeah yeah like 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 in between the the two seats so yeah. you're like you're literally so he, peeping at them and he's like isolating the characters so good. by doing that so like to me, it's like the reason you like Unbreakable is because it's a superhero movie that thinks superheroes are as serious as you think they are. I guess, that, well, and I guess this is a movie that did come out before uh, the, the Christopher Nolan Batman, right? So it probably, probably, if I had seen it in the in the early aughts when it came out, it would have been way different than watching it today, where I'm just like, get anything that anything that has a cape. 
I don't want to know about it. Yeah. I don't want to see it. I will watch Unbreakable <laughs> again before I watch Batman Begins again, which I maintain is the worst <laughs> Christopher Nolan movie. Um, but uh, I think the thing about this is it is a twist because it is fundamentally... Well, I guess, I guess I guess by the definition we just laid out and my argument earlier, it's not a twist because it doesn't change the nature of the story that's being told. It is a new piece of information yeah. that illuminates nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Um it it raises a bunch of questions, but it doesn't necessarily reveal anything new about these characters. Yeah, yeah, it's they it's just like a surprise. People who have gone to drastic lengths to isolate themselves from what they've just what they have decided is the corruption of society. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, knock at the cabin. It's just sort of like basically presenting you with this like trolley problem. And it's just sort of like, oh, my God, what are these characters going to do? But there's no twist. Right. Uh, You you can't call something a twist if there is if the movie sets up a premise that has a binary state at the end. Either they are telling the truth and the apocalypse is coming unless they do this or they are not telling the truth. Yeah. And it's like if the audience knows going into the premise that one of those two things will happen, Mm -hmm. then neither of them can be considered a twist. You know, preparing for this podcast got me thinking about Henry George Clouseau, um, Mm -hmm. where, you know, uh, Le Diabolique right, is right. like um famous twist ending that is the one movie where like I I will keep my my holy cinephile's vow to not spoil no, Diabolique. No, no. Um he, Henry George Clouseau asked you nicely <laughs> at the end of the movie. That's right, he did. He did. <laughs> if Shyamalan had asked me nicely, you know, oh, I would I would take up that gentleman's agreement, but he hasn't. Um so you have you have that movie which does have a twist ending, mm-hmm. but then you have Wages of Fear which is also really suspenseful but it's just sort of like oh shit how are they gonna how is this gonna play out right what's gonna happen there's a shocking moment at the end yeah but it's not a twist right right it's not like we're trans we're transporting puppies the whole time (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so I i think that is like like one of those terms where it just sort of like loses its specificity um do you have Shyamalan or not, do you have a favorite movie with a twist ending? Uh, I, I don't necessarily uh, have like an all-time favorite sure. locked and loaded ready to go, but I would say like one that is a post-Sixth Sense movie that really um, lives up to the way that the Sixth Sense has much more meaning the second time you watch it. Uh-huh. I think you made a face that we're, let's count uh, three okay. and we'll say it at the okay. same time, right? The one, one, two, two three. Shutter, Shutter Island. Island. Oh my God, I fucking <laughs> love that movie. <laughs> The first time you're watching it, you're like, I guess, I mean, it's a really beautiful thriller. I don't know why Scorsese had to make this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and yeah, and then, and then the end happens and you're like, fucking what? And then you watch it and then you watch it a second time and it plays completely differently. Mm-hmm. But it's so satisfying, mm-hmm. um, especially like like for me, um, I saw it the first time before. Before I got my master's in social work and I saw it the second time after I've been working in social services for a while. So like also just like my life experiences had kind of influenced how I'm watching this movie. So it was quite a different experience for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, Scorsese didn't ask us not to spoil uh, Shutter Island and it, it is a, a movie over a decade old. But um, yeah, th- yeah, that that is that is just just watch it if you haven't seen it. That's like... <sighs> Maybe my my favorite Scorsese movie, but specifically like the first the when you watch Sixth Sense additional times, you realize that Cole A knows that Bruce Willis is dead the whole time, and he's trying to like drop little hints. Right, he's trying to be like, look, buddy, Um, and he's like so scared at the beginning, like he's frightened of it. Right, but then also he 
begins to like this is the first actual like civil conversation he's ever had with a ghost yeah and you realize that actually the thing cole is going to go on to do is basically become a therapist for ghosts yeah and like he is learning his trade he he is like he is the apprentice to bruce willis he's kind of watching what bruce willis is doing Mm -hmm. and he is like taking that and then he is becoming Bruce Willis for all these other ghosts and stuff like that. Yeah. And that dynamic is fascinating and of course only makes sense after you've seen the movie once. Yeah, yeah. And and it, it does um lend this sense of, of hope that feels earned where it's like okay, he can't stop seeing the ghosts but he can learn how to manage it. Right. Um, You know, so uh, yeah, yeah, revisiting Sixth Sense and, and also there there is just um some of the some of the Shyamalan aesthetics in that movie are um, uh, c- kind of carry through with um, later movies in his career. Like um, he's very interested in color, um, and there's sort of uh, like like any time something supernatural is going to happen with a ghost. Not not any time, but but many many times in Sixth Sense, um, like like bright red is um, is a, a significant. Uh, um, um, tip off that that there's something scary that's going to happen like like the the basement that Bruce Willis keeps trying to get into in his home it's like this bright red knob and um there's a a a, a scene where um where uh, uh Cole's at a at a birthday party and he he's about and he's about to see a ghost and the reason that he's about to see it is that like he has this like bright red balloon that floats up a staircase and he's following the balloon up the staircase and then has this experience mm-hmm. with this ghost um so that's like like another thing which you, you see again in the village with like um red being the bad color and yellow being the good color and like so for me like in on the whole the reason i like thinking about and talking about the village is because it to me is inseparable from the hubris of M. Night Shyamalan in 2004. Mm-hmm. It is like the end point of what happens when someone is treated with kid gloves and called a genius and mm. like sort of just like pumped up full of that ego and someone who's already primed to to take that energy yeah. and like run with it. Yeah, and, and repeat this narrative of like, oh, this movie with a twist is going to be real secret. Right. Like, and so like the village, like the reason red is the bad color is because part of the mythology of the sixth sense had already been like, I remember I was in middle school and people were like, the thing you got to notice about the sixth sense is the color red. Mm-hmm. And like, I think on the end of the videotape, not even a DVD on the end of the videotape, there was like a little bit of a featurette at the end. Mm-hmm. And they were like, Oh, all of the secrets of M night Shyamalan. And one of the things they said is like, like the way he uses color, like red in the sixth. So like mm-hmm. part of the way they were marketing that movie is like, this is a dense text of like hidden meanings and symbols. And what you should do is buy three movie tickets. Cause you're going to want to see it three times to get them all yeah and like i do think like a big reason why the sixth sense made as much money as it did is because so many people were repeat customers Mm. um and like by the time you get to the village when he is like red is the color the bad color he is now referencing himself he is now working on a playbook that a lot of other filmmakers of this era and certainly before were doing where he realizes it's not Mel Gibson mm-hmm. that they're going to go see signs for. Mm-hmm. It's M. Night Shyamalan they're going yeah. to go see signs for. Yeah. And so he is sort of um, like he is sort of incubating this uh, celebrity character, M. Night Shyamalan. Um, there's mm-hmm. a absolutely fucking unhinged uh, 
quote-unquote documentary about the making of the village right. <laughs> called the the buried secrets of m night Shyamalan mm-hmm. that aired on sci-fi channel and it was like a mockumentary about this film crew that just goes to make a typical behind the scenes documentary and they discover there's something eerie going on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it is absolutely unhinged egoism and like the way he shoots his own cameo in the movie where he's like i know you all been waiting for it and you didn't think you get to see my face but guess what buddy Boom! The, the the glass door moves and you could see my face yeah. in the reflection. Everybody get up and applaud. It's M. Night! Yeah. M. Night. It's like yeah. for him, it's like because he is the star. Like it's basically he is revealing his own director's cameo as if he is Orson yeah. Welles in The Third Man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or like it's only my third movie, but this is my Hitchcock moment. Yeah. Um, cause because I'm just like building up this mythos around. You know, you know who like like when we're talking about like directors and like mythology of personality, um, it makes me think of George Lucas. George Lucas, where um, like like with the with the color red, um, you know, and like the color symbolism, like like I think it's cool because I like that kind of thing. But it's not like it's not like he invented it. You know, it, it's it's like it's like having having the color red symbolize something special. I mean, I mean that's, the, I mean, I mean movies alone. That's fucking Wizard of Oz. You know, that's Schindler's List. Mm-hmm. That's um, that fucking French movie with the kid in the balloon, yeah. you know? So, so and, and I'm, I'm sure that, that, like, we can look at, like, at, like you know, literary and, and mythological um, other examples where, where red denotes something special or supernatural. Um, but then it's like, oh, it's like this M. Night Shyamalan thing. We're kind of like with George Lucas, where it's like, oh, George Lucas and, and Star Wars is the hero's journey. It's like, OK, great. A lot of things are the hero's journey. Right. And, and But this becomes like part of his persona. Um, and it's like, OK, well, it's going to have diminishing returns because at the end of the day, it's not like. It's not your thing. Nineteen ninety-nine. It's a tool the year the you're Sixth using. Sense came out. It was the number two movie of the year. Number one was, was another Menace. act of hubris. <laughs> yes. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Yes. yes. And it's like, what is it? What is it when when George Lucas gets called like the nerd in chief, who is like the ultimate synthesis of taste and flavor? And it's like he's the guy who took World War Two movies and Kurosawa movies and westerns and Flash Gordon, and it all went into his genius brain, and what came out is our favorite sci-fi universe. Yeah. And it's like, because of his ultimate uh, ability to to judge, like, which parts of what things, it's like, everything flows through George Lucas. And it's like, he wrote the first movie. He has, I think, I think he has a screenwriting credit or possibly just a story credit on those next two movies. Mm-hmm. Like, he yeah. directed the first movie. Um, <laughs> and it's like, actually, there's a lot of people who went into making those that original Star Wars trilogy good. And then when you watch the prequels where it's like all George. Yeah. It's, and it's like, like written ugh. and directed three straight movies in a row. George, George, George. You're like, oh, okay. Well, that's now we've all turned on George Lucas and we're all mad at him or whatever. Yeah. Um, I was thinking more along the lines of like, you know, he, he, he broke through in 1999. This is the era when like Quentin Tarantino was hosting yeah. SNL. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kevin Smith has an entire career built around the fact that people like hearing him talk. It's, it's the same thing with, with Tarantino. I'm, I mean, I mean, his, his returns are less diminishing arguably, but he, he's also the master of synthesis and he's just like, yeah. I'm going to take a little of a Kung Fu movie and a little of a, of a black exploitation movie and mix it all together and here and, and put someone's bare feet in it. And that's what you got. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but like 
Shyamalan gets hit with the genius in like a more vague and like mythological way. Yeah. That's like that was that was only going to fall. Yeah. No one's going yeah. to withstand that. Yeah. There's We're- always going to be a backlash. It's inevitable that it happens. But also he didn't do himself any favors by marketing this movie as if it's like this is going to be the scariest. Fu-. Like if you watch yeah. the trailers to the village, they are selling this as like what is happening yeah. in this village. Yeah. It, they do not sell it as like, she frolics in the garden with her foolish, you know, with her yeah. foolish friend. Yeah. And she, and she, she can see colors with her auras, but she's not telling which is which because she's so coquettish. Like, yeah. like so much of this movie is not. There's, Jane Austen's The Village. There are arguably two scary scenes in the movie. There is the initial little monster attack. Yeah. And then there is when she's alone in the woods later and Adrian Brody dressed as the monster yeah you learn later is like coming after her yeah those are the two scenes in this nearly two hour movie that are played for scares yeah it's just never intended to be that kind of movie mm-hmm. so when you get a whole bunch of people in a theater they just like the last one they saw was signs which people are already sort of catching on that like maybe genius is not the correct noun like they're, yeah he, he's something yeah but, like maybe like we all saw the ending of signs like maybe genius isn't the right word yeah um, yeah like people are already like a little bit skeptical, but they also were just delivered a really great scary movie before and they are promised an even scarier one this time. Yeah. And what they get instead is William Hurt saying, what manner of spectacle has attracted your attention so splendidly? I ought to carry it in my pocket to help me teach, which is like, that's how Conan O'Brien talks in the old timey baseball <laughs> yeah, segment. I was just thinking um, of a Christmas story, Ralphie's daydream where his teacher goes, poetry, ship, poetry. Yes, yeah. That was, that was what M. Night Shyamalan said to himself after he wrote that line <laughs> yes, of dialogue. Yeah. Like, even if you are willing to meet him halfway, like the shit is corny. <laughs> I will absolutely meet a director halfway Mm -hmm. for things like oh the colors have meanings and i'm just like oh yes the colors have meanings very good very good um the green eyes gatsby symbolizes yeah exactly exactly i mean yeah i i am a sucker for that but um i i don't have i mean i have i will say i have more patience for Shyamalan than i thought i was going to Mm -hmm. coming into this just because I mean, craft-wise, he's very good. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, his movies are um, visually always very pleasing. Um, He he gets good actors who give mostly good performances. I mean, I think think, sometimes incredible performances. Yeah, yeah, and I I think I think a lot of times Dave Bautista in Oh my god, oh my god, Um, I still got it on occasion. I I think um and I think I think a lot of times like the um the 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 more uh prickly performances are maybe just due to um what the actor has to navigate in terms of the reality of the movie. Yeah. Um but it, but it se- it seems like like he he does have it within him to work with an actor to to bring out a really compelling performance. You know who I think gives a compelling performance in this movie? Who? Judy Greer. <laughs> I love Judy Greer in this movie. There's a moment where I was so I just want to say I was so uh-huh. ready to walk into this being like 
Yeah, she's somewhere in the background in a seat. It's yeah. like a, it's a big ensemble piece, and there's like forty people in this movie. Jesse yeah. Eisenberg's in this fucking movie just because Judy Greer's in it. Trust me, I have a Judy Greer podcast. I know. Yeah, just because Judy Greer's in it doesn't mean they're gonna let her be Judy Greer. He lets her be Judy yeah. Greer. In yeah, yeah. Two thousand and four, before there was a Judy Greer to be. Yeah, I was. I was very, very pleased with her performance. Like, um, like there's that. There's the sequence where um the 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 Twidenso are um infiltrating the village and and everyone's going to run and hide and and she's in the cellar um and and she plays Kitty who is Ivy's older sister. Not to be confused with Kitty who is George Bluth senior's uh, yes. secretary <laughs> yes. in Arrested Development. This is a this is a much more uh modest uh and ladylike Kitty uh but but there's a there's a moment where um where Ivy is waiting for Lucius to 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 come into the safety of their house and Kitty is holding open the cellar door and she just whispers don't let them in and I was like oh that that that's a trailer moment and then I looked it up on YouTube and it was like yeah there's Judy Greer in the trailer going don't let them in I do not believe <laughs> that David Gordon Green realized he was aping the village when he shot the climax of the 2018 film Halloween. Oh, yeah. However, <laughs> see Judy Greer half in a cellar going, there's a ultimate evil out there that I cannot deal with right now. I was like, boy, that sure is familiar. <laughs> yeah. We just covered Halloween on this podcast. There's something about Judy Greer in cellars, let me tell you. It's good stuff. Um, she also get like, like the first scene that you see her in where she is telling her father that she is in love with Lucius. She is just the most like starstruck, giggly, um, over the moon, idealistic teenager. It's so adorable. And this is and this is part of why, like, my take on the on the village itself is like not one of austerity. Is like at no point is she admonished for being effervescent, and like yeah. she is entirely defined by just being like so full of joy and energy and she's so peppy and everything. It's yeah. not like that's a vulgar display of emotion. Please. Right. Right. Um, her, her father, uh, William Hurt is, is quite amused by her energy. In fact. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And, and, and so is like, um, her, her sister, they, um, this isn't the kind of fairy tale where the sisters are at odds with each other and there's mm -hmm. the good one and the bad one. They have a very sweet relationship. They really care about each other. Um, which I guess ups the stakes when there is like the danger in the village, or when um you know kitty does meet the the man of her dreams and on on their wedding night the village is filled with um skinless fox corpses kitty does <laughs> not meet the man of her dreams kitty settles for the man who comes after the man of her dreams Shh. because what kitty does is walk up to lucius and go good afternoon lucius I love you, Lucius. I love you like the day is long. I love you more than the sun and the moon together. And if you feel the same way, you should not hide it any longer. It's a gift, love is. We should be thankful. We should bellow it out with all the breath in our lungs. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. She Hard cut to her sobbing. Oh, my oh, God. So, that to me oh is my like, God. that's fucking Judy Greer right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just those those two extremes and just like like the way that both of them are just so full of heart. Yeah. Um, And she really sells that monologue. Like, like she really finds the the meaning in it and like the the spontaneity in it. And she and she doesn't really have any kind of um reservation about it yeah i it made me really want to see her in 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 something else with heightened language right. like like uh like well-written like in ibsen or something yeah like that, yeah as to absolutely <laughs> absolutely i i i 
So yeah, Judy Greer doesn't do a lot of like period pieces. Right. Um, I have spoken on this podcast before where she just feels like someone who coexists with the internet. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I don't, I don't think unless we get some kind of like, um, you know, uh, a, another like Romeo plus Juliet type, uh, like Shakespeare and modern day kind of thing. I don't think we're going to really see much of that, but. I mean, I, I think it would be really great to see her if she ever does like Shakespeare in the park and I'm in Manhattan for some stupid reason. And I wanna... I'll tell you why we're in Manhattan. We're in Manhattan because Judy Greer is doing Shakespeare in the park. That is the occasion. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're, you're miles and sideways. Guess what? We're opening that fucking bottle of wine. That's the occasion. <laughs> if you want to send us to, to Manhattan to see Shakespeare in the park, um, when Judy Greer, if and when Judy Greer is is cast in one of those plays, um, let us know and we will get that Patreon set up. Yeah. Um, yeah, but but she is uh, she also gets uh, more to do than just be like a sister. It's you true. know, she has her. I mean, I mean, her goals are very simple. She wants a husband she wants to fall in love Mm -hmm. but i mean they're there um which you can't say about a lot of the movies we've seen like she has her perspectives um which you can't say about a lot of the movies we've seen so i was yeah i was pleasantly surprised there's a really great moment where bryce dallas howard is giving her is embracing her on her wedding night everyone's walking up and congratulating her and Mm -hmm. stuff and her sister uh, bryce dallas howard ivy wraps her arms around her and she initially receives it as just a very warm expression of affection. And then as the hold goes on longer and longer, you don't see Bryce Dallas Howard's face. You just see Judy Greer's face. And you see the like complicated feelings that Ivy has about her sister getting married or whatever um, play out on Judy Greer's face. Yeah. Yeah. And then like the, you see that whole attitude shift in a single shot, you know, and, and then she walks off and then it ends with a, a pretty good punchline, which is her, her new husband being like, she's not going to do that to me. Right. I don't want to wrinkle my, my shirt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like I thought that was a good bit, but like, yeah, surprisingly, uh, for a movie in which Sigourney fucking Weaver gets nothing to do. Yeah. Like she is sort of like, I love you, William Hurt. And he's like, uh, sorry, I got, my ear, it's uh, loud in here. I got to go. Um, like, and that, like, that is the entirety of Sigourney Weaver, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, in this movie, like, I was shocked at how, how we're feasting out here. Oh, uh, yeah. On 96 oh, yeah. Careers with uh, The Village, which perhaps uh, when you have a podcast, uh, you're not necessarily, like, looking forward to the episode where you have to cover The Village. Turns <laughs> out, if you have a Judy Greer podcast, this is a pretty good episode. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, as much as I was reluctant to, to watch these movies that I knew I wasn't going to be in love with. I stand by what I said at the beginning of of the conversation. They give you a lot to talk about. Mm-hmm. This might be a director who knows how to utilize, but I guess we'll talk about that a little later. Yeah, I guess so. Um, but before we do that, right. unless you have anything else to add about the village, um, we can move forward with the other segment. The other segment. Um, Patrick, would you like to go first? I would like to go first. Um so obviously, and Night Shyamalan synonymous with twists. Mm-hmm. Judy Greer synonymous with no particular kind of movie. I thought we could look over the Judy Greer movies that we've already covered on the podcast, and we would go into them and add a twist in a segment that I like to call an actress named Judy took countless film roles, all genres, every size. She always fits. 
She doesn't have to have a mainstream sensibility, but she's made a lot of flicks with out curve balls. She wants to make them more weird. She wants to make them more weird. Let's go twisting with Judy Greer. Twisting, twisting with Judy Greer. That is a segment I call Twisting with Judy Greer. Wouldn't it be hilarious if I edited that out? Don't do it. <laughs> mm, but I might. Why? That might be my twist. Is <laughs> that I'm a really mean editor. You are. You are if you edit that out. I worked really hard on that. I Yeah, I just got jealous because I was like, oh no, Patrick put more effort into the title of the other segment than I put into <laughs> the like my half of the... Um, of, of the contents of, of the segment. So I'm just feeling a little, a little jealous. Uh. Well, let me start. Okay. Um, okay. So on our previous episode of this very podcast, we discussed Jeff who lives at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, just real quick to make sure. Did you do Jeff who lives at home as your twist? No, I did okay. not. All right, cool. So on a previous episode of this podcast, we discussed Jeff who lives at home and we talked about the climax of the movie in particular and where all the characters are sort of sprinting towards their destinies through this traffic jam and, you know, we were pretty harsh on the movie, right? We yes. were, like, talking about the screenplay and how it's, like, entirely built on coincidences. Yeah, yeah, we were, we were pretty critical. What if there were no coincidences at all? So, we start at the point where Ed Helms and Jason Siegel are in the backseat of a cab. And Ed Helms is like, oh, man, I never know if I'm doing the right thing. Isn't it hard? And then Jason Siegel realizes, wait a second, I always know I'm doing the right thing. I've known everything that was going to happen all day long. And then suddenly it dawns on him. He puts the pieces together. He sprints out of the car. And as we watch him run through traffic, we get a montage of everything that's happened. And we see that it was Ray Dawn Chong who was the puppet master all along. (laughs) You see her flower tattoo reveals that she is actually a horticulturalist. She is in fact on the fringes of botany. People said she was too extreme because she convulti- she cultivated a new strain of weed that turned people into superhumans. But first, she had to create an environment where Jeff would learn to trust these new abilities. We see her paying the guy to call and ask for Kevin. We see that the Kevin he follows on the bus was actually an actor working for her. And the weed he smokes with Jason Siegel is laced with Chemical Sigma, the chemical that produces superhumans. We see that it was her who sold Ed Helms that Porsche. It was her who incepted both Ed Helms and Jason Siegel to have the same dreams about their dad. And why? What was their grand plan? She was going to drop a van full of children off a bridge and force Jason Siegel to reveal his superpowers to the world and his mother. That's right. He is Gilboy, and he has the power to breathe underwater indefinitely, which is why he was able to save the family and all that crap. And while his mom was basking with pride at her hero son, Radon Radon Chong would swoop in and make her fall in love. And their love story is actually a diabolical act of manipulation from the very beginning. That's right. Jeff, who lives at home, makes perfect sense. Thank you, M. Night Shyamalan. Did you say in there that she has inception powers? Yeah. He puts a helmet on and then goes, yeah, your dream says the, the most important days now or whatever the fuck that dream about their dad was. It's a coincidence that they have that dream unless it isn't. Does she just like walk around with the helmet? They're both sleeping. Uh-huh. She puts on the helmet. Uh-huh. She puts on her own helmet. Wait, Inception, it's not helmets. They like, they're plugged in 
uh, to a suitcase. I I, th- I think they're wearing a helmet. She's plugged into the suitcase. And okay. So she's able to uh, make them dream about something. Okay. I see. I see. I see. I see. Th- th- this is going to be um pretty long movie. What's that? Your version of Jeff who lives at home. No, same version. It's just all of what I just said is a montage that happens at the very end as he's running through traffic and as that music from Requiem for a Dream plays. So the montage is like 10 seconds long? No, no. I mean that you stretch out the scene to like 40 seconds, but... 40 seconds. Yeah. So, so it plays, it t- basically takes about the same amount of time. It's just you hear all these voiceovers and you see little clips of her like giving a paycheck to Kevin and stuff like so that. So there's like a three second clip where we learn that Inception powers exist in this world? Yeah. What we do is... That's a twist! We do a single shot. All right, look, here's uh-huh. what you do. It's okay, very okay, simple. Okay, okay. Shot of her, of her putting a helmet on Sleeping at Helms. Uh-huh. Um, shot, uh, the, the same shot, camera pans over to a laptop and it says, dream about dad in the classroom, initiate. And she presses enter. <laughs> oh, That's all you gotta do. Okay, I see. And I, and I guess if, if you're M. Night Shyamalan making The Village, you just come up with this concept and then you say, this is Roger Deakins' problem. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I I was struck when I was looking over the movies we've covered that the ending of Jeff Who Lives at Home is kind of the same as the ending of Glass. So I just went ahead and did that. <laughs> and and he does mention signs in the beginning right. as his like his 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 yeah. call to adventure, which is a monster movie and not about belief. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean. I think the way that we were talking about Jeff who lives at home, it's also kind of a monster movie. It is. It is. Ed Helms is the greatest monster. Um, that's that's my uh, twisting with Judy Greer. Well, now I feel even less confident. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> well, uh, I I think it's really important for everyone at home to have the context that you had today off and I did not. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's, I almost fell over. Yes, that is that is true. I did literally, there was an hour where I was going to read a book, and instead I said, what if I worked on lyrics to a parody song of yeah, They Might Be Giants? But in my uh, in my union-mandated break, mm-hmm. uh, I did take a little time uh, to come up with my own uh, twist ending for yeah. a Judy Greer movie. And uh, I decided to... Uh, Give a little zhuzh to Lolly Love. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> one of the more um, obscure movies, one of the more obscure episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to remind people, this is like a um, fun little uh, shoestring budget project that James Gunn did with Jenna Fisher, uh, who was his wife at the time. And it's sort of a an uh, improvisational comedy about this uh, wealthy, out-of-touch couple played by James and, and Jenna um, who decide that they're going to um, give back to the community uh, by starting a charity where they give out lollipops to uh, poor people, basically. And it's uh, and, and the, the, the humor is, is like just how, how ridiculous they are and, and how they just don't understand how the world works outside of their um, opulent lifestyle. Um, but so I think, you know, the, the movie kind of plays out as it does where um, they're, they're getting uh, their 
they're 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 programmed together and they're finding the lollipops and and they're coming up with all their their ridiculous pitches and they're getting their friends um they're like you know um blonde hollywood friends including judy greer uh together to hand out the lollipops um and they're just making a, a, a whole mess of things but um at the end it is revealed that uh the United States is now a communist utopia and all the people who were formerly the upper crust one percenters like James and Jenna um, were given the choice to part voluntarily with their wealth. And if they didn't do so, they were kept prisoner in McMansions in Los Angeles. So oh, James dear. and Jenna are actually um prisoners um for, because of their um their inability to uh to to share their resources for the benefit of uh the greater good and um that whole experience has kind of kind of like Ayn Rand had them lose touch with reality oh. uh <laughs> and uh so the 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 peop the the supposedly homeless homeless people who they're handing out the lollipops to are actually prison guards who are uh, monitoring them, and um, there's a scene in the movie where they have lunch with Jason Siegel and Linda Cardellini and ask them for a donation and like and like pitch their project to them and we find out that Jason Siegel and Linda Cardellini are actually the wardens of the prison who monitor Jenna and James so this whole revolution uh happened around the same time that Freaks and Geeks was was a, was a thing um and so they were like okay well you two are going to monitor Hollywood and and whenever um our formerly wealthy prisoners um, get these sort of strange ideas in their head. You're going to take them out for brunch and assess the situation and figure out a way to shut it down. Uh, and so that's how they kind of, um, you know, have, have this whole project kind of play out and then fizzle pretty quickly. Cause it's, it's, I mean, just besides the fact that, you know, it's bound to fail. Um, they don't really have to do much, just sort of react as any normal person would to, um, to being handed a lollipop out of nowhere uh, and it it just collapses in on itself but so the last image of the movie is um, it just it pulls back and it pulls back and it pulls back and you see that Los Angeles is now uh, covered by a giant dome like in the Truman Show dun 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 oh my goodness can I ask you can I ask Jenna Fisher's not going to get a lobotomy right because this is kind of Shutter Island. This is kind of this is, it is kind of Shutter Island. It's kind of Shutter Island, and I hope it's not. No, like no, no, no. I, I mean, their, I mean, their their project fails, and therefore Jenna Fisher is going to get a lobotomy. No, no, they, they've hoisted themselves by their own petards. They're um, she's given up on her project, and she's on to the next thing, like you know, hot yoga for opossums or whatever. Um, yeah. And James Gunn is back to just like you know playing Nintendo or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so you know they. They're, they've just they've just set themselves up for failure, you know, w without the uh, w w without the the structures of privilege um, holding them up and allowing them to succeed however they want. Um, they just they just fail and collapse back into themselves. I like so, it. Yeah, I like it too. <laughs> it's nice to think about. Yeah. Anyway, um, did I mention I was burned out? Uh, <laughs> Better than Escape from L.A. <laughs> Oh, well, I don't know about all that, but thank that's, you. That's the uh, that's the John Carpenter sequel that imagines L.A. is a giant prison. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. So so it's kind of like uh kind of like Escape from Shutter Island. Yeah. And it's with lollipops. It's lollipops. <laughs> That's that movie. Um so my segments uh um I so moving on to my segment, yeah. Um, it's called "Those We Already Spoke About." <laughs> okay, I like that. Um, and we're gonna play a little game where um, one of us is going to summarize um, the plot or the concept of a previous movie that we've covered, uh, but do it in villager speak. So uh, to try and replicate this this heightened contractionless language that the characters use in the village and then the other one of us has to guess what movie's being described mm-hmm. okay do you want to go first i'll go first sure if there were a field of flowers all the color that is safe and i were on this morn to count the petals of every one it would not equal the goodly power of love pure and good therefore is not the noblest profession that which aligns itself with the goodly power of love pure and good? But whenith Sister Mary doth design the path of love's parade, she does so without goodly double fine purity, but instead a lecherous eye towards the mo- moving lovers as poppets in exchange for the thing with which payments are made in town and the office that is cornered. But a healer catches her fancy despite courts of protest and I do think within her the light of double plus happy time good love is at war with the night of thirst only quenched by that thing upon which payments are thusly made truth in town. Also, she's Italian? They made J-Lo Italian? Why did they make Jennifer Lopez fucking Italian? So, do you have any idea about what movie that could possibly mean? <laughs> well, I, I have to say... Um... When you started with the imagery of the flowers, I thought you were going going for adaptation. Ah. Um, but then I realized um, when you mentioned like Mary and her her love of payments in the town, it was I was just like an empty saccharine metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, th- then I realized it was the wedding planner, and then mm-hmm. of course J Lo being Italian, the wedding planner, unbelievable. Yeah, you talk mean, about a twist, Jennifer Lowe. She was Selena. That was. <laughs> like some little thing people didn't know about like yeah jennifer lopez yeah well you know that, that was uh that was 20 years ago um okay so here's mine a woman is cursed to fall to the temptations of the flesh in abject shame she returns to the land of her forefathers where she and her gentle-hearted sister labor as humble chambermaids fortune frowns upon the wayward wench one final time as she fortuitously dispatches a foul rogue and a merry chase ensues as the two lasses endeavor to spirit away his earthly remains my goodness, I do believe that is addicted to Fresno. Yay, verily. <laughs> <laughs> what movie uh-huh. that we have covered on the podcast so far do you think the villagers in the village would most enjoy? If they saw it as a movie or as, as like a fond pantomime for the Mayfair? That's a great question. I think, uh, let's go ahead and just say someone sits them down and goes, uh, a, a witch gave us this from the woods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a witch. A sure. witch gave us this um, from the woods. Uh, you hear some popcorn. Uh, we'll explain that also later. Um, this is your very, <laughs> the very first movie you're ever going to watch. Um, I, I, I pulled this question just out of a hat just now. I didn't have an answer prepared, but I think my answer is the cat returns. 
I think a cartoon would be less frightening to them, and they would <laughs> I see a cartoon the... would be more frightening. Those cats freak me out when they're walking on their back legs. They look creepy. I think I would think it'd be, they would be like, "Oh, it is folly." Okay, that's <laughs> it fair. is that's like fair. the flight of the birds or whatever that like little bird ceremony that they, <laughs> yes, they yes. were talking about at one point. And I'm like, "What is the religion here? Your bird ceremony?" I would show them the Descendants um, because I think it is about. It's about family. It's about it's about grief. It's about learning to forgive. And and this seems like people who I mean these people are very community oriented, mm-hmm. and uh, I I think it's something that they would find relatable. Um, and they um, they wouldn't find the the dialogue nearly as corny as we do because they're not jaded about such things as archipelagos. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah. So I I, I like thinking about about them uh, getting all teared up um <laughs> really the most moving thing is when they see the ocean oh that's right that's like that's honestly right. it's like oh uh, this this man is i guess handsome i guess like movie star who gives a shit yeah like, what is that yeah like that is the ocean that surrounds hawaii what is hawaii <laughs> that is not part of the of the nation of the united states yeah. of america you know right now in 1884 you know that village they settled kind of far from bodies of water. True. Do you think? There, I, I, I don't even think you see a well. I'm sure somewhere there's a well, but like. Do you think? What? They're allergic to water. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh. Hold on. Double just twist. A just a second. Oh, hold on. Oh, my God. Oh, that was so good. Hold on just a second. That's that's me realizing that the village is a sequel to or a prequel to Signs, maybe. Um, well, let, let's move on from that because then, then I'll start thinking about like um, their like metal production problems again. Anyway, moving on to judalization. Um, so judalization is the penult the the ultimate the ultimate segment mm. of ninety six Greers, where we ask ourselves. Uh, how well did the movie that we showcased in the episode utilize the the beauty, the grace, the charm, the charisma of Judy freaking Greer? Um, right now we have uh, Eric LaRue um, from 2023 at the very tippy top um, number one best boy uh, of Judalization. And uh, way down in 18th place, we have In Memory of My Father. That's the uh, last airbender zone for you uh, yes. Shyamalan heads. Yeah. Um, and then uh, right smack dab in the middle, uh, we have the previously mentioned uh, The Descendants. Um, so uh, I think kind of based on our previous conversation um, about how pleased we were with Judy Greer's um, performance and and the material that she got to work with in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I am imagining that we are both wanting to place the village above the descendants. Correct. This is a top 50 percentile yeah. uh, movie. Um, so uh, right in the, uh, the number five, which is kind of the the bottom of the top 25%, we have the wedding planner. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think she is better utilized in the wedding planner? I think it is below the wedding planner. I Yeah, I agree. I, I, in my mind, the, the movie that this most made me think of was adaptation, 
where okay. she steps into a scene specifically where she's declaring her love to Lucius mm-hmm. and she sort of like gives it an energy that the movie didn't have it up to that point mm-hmm. and gives it an energy that is all Judy Greer and that's kind of Judy Greer in adaptation as the waitress where it's mm-hmm. just like this this is now a new kind of character that has appeared in this movie uh, even though it's not a pivotal character of adaptation it is just sort of like that is the little spice of Judy Greer dashed in at the right moment. Um, so to me, I would put this like either above or below Halloween. Okay, yeah. Either number I'm, six or number seven. Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of thinking the same. Um, it's, it's difficult because I feel like in Halloween... Um, she is so good at being her mother's daughter, but also um, suppressing that urge because she wants to be her own woman and her own mother. Mm-hmm. Um, well, her own kind of mother, I should say. She doesn't want to mother herself. Um, don't steal that M. Night Shyamalan. You have to option it from me. I'm copywriting it. What um, about the beach where you turn into your mother? <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Ugh, just call that looking in the mirror. Uh, just, just call that turning 40. Um, anyway, so I, I think that I think that um, that Halloween uh, harnesses this like aspect of Judy Greer that comes with age because mm-hmm. they're like what like 14 years apart yeah um and i think uh the village does such a great job of harness of harnessing her at like a younger age and being this like lovesick uh young woman who is you know so bubbly and willing to be a little foolish and willing to wear her heart on her sleeve so they just feel like both very apt roles for her but very tied into like where she is in her in like the lifespan. Yeah. Um, I kind of just, I, she's not a reason to watch Halloween. Right. It's, uh, I kind of feel like she gives one of the three best performances in this movie in a way that I'm like, I maybe want to put it above Halloween just because it is like, God, so much of this dialogue is so clunky and these actors are just out in the weeds trying to, trying to give life to it and then she pops up and she is given a real wordy uh, monologue and she nails it this is also according to her memoir i don't know what you know me from my life as a co-star um she does say that the that the village was her first big role in a big budget film that shot outside la and then uh talking about like how she was out there for a long time and of course it was uh Pennsylvania in the winter, which is like a very different um, environment from L.A. So I, I think uh, I, I would just imagine. I mean, she is from Michigan. So like the girl knows what winter is like. Right. Um, but I, I think um, that probably was like a pretty big shock to the system. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to assume that she was kind of uh at that time in her career um working a little more upstream uh against the current than 
um, than she would have otherwise. Mm -hmm. So um, I think based on that, I do want to put it above Halloween just because it seems like um, like 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 not only is she the kind of actress who can handle the weird dialogue with a sense of utter sincerity um, that just comes across as like so delightful and makes you buy into like the the clunkily written words. It's it's just like it's knowing that it was kind of a feat on her part yeah. makes me want to put it above Halloween. Yeah, I think I think that's all sound logic. Okay, so that puts the village at number six of nineteen. Um, so up there in the in the top third of. Uh, the Hall of Fame of uh, Judalization, one might say. I, 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 we did say. <laughs> Final thoughts about the village? Any information that you want to add that's going to completely change the context of uh, the last uh, two hours of us recording? I'm sleepy, and I've been sleepy the whole time. What? Yes, woke up very early this morning. <laughs> Considering the, the the gibberish that we spew, I don't think anyone's going to be surprised. Nah. <laughs> I mean, I'm a little sleepy myself, but uh, yeah, I think everyone's just going to be like, yeah, that tracks. That tracks. <laughs> um, well, our next episode is going to be on the 2017 comedy uh, Lemon, uh, directed by uh, Janisha Bravo. Um, you can probably tell from my tone of voice that I have already seen this movie and have an opinion on it. (laughs) (laughs) 96 Greers is part of the Now Playing Network. Check out the other podcasts at nowplayingnetwork.net. Follow us on Mastodon at 96greers at laserdisc.party. Follow Reg on Letterboxd at Panda Bear Shape. Follow me on Blue Sky and Instagram at Uptown Song Club. Email us at 96greers at proton.me. And not a twist, but exciting new information. Oh, you me. can now leave us a voice message yeah. at speakpipe.com slash 96greers. That's speakpipe.com slash 96greers. Don't all crowd it at once and crash the internet. Uh, Until next time, I'm Reg. And I'm Patrick. And and say say goodbye to these. These being ankles in this case.